Today's episode is brought to you by Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, which R.L. Kwan calls Remarkable, a biography that's also a memoir, a story of obsession and longing. In this boundary-breaking debut, Chaplin takes a deep look at the life and archives of writer Carson McCullers and discovers truths about herself in the process. She examines the ways we record queer love stories in archive, in writing, in memory, and considers how the stories we tell make us who we are. Carmen Maria Machado calls my autobiography of Carson McCullers gorgeous, symphonic, tender, and brilliant, a monumental achievement. In this genre-bending work of nonfiction, Chaplin brings the full weight of her intellect to bear on one of literature's most important questions. How do queer readers find the truth and themselves between the lines? My autobiography of Carson McCullers is out on February 4th from Tin House Books. Speaking of Carmen Maria Machado, I'm excited for her return to Between the Covers to discuss her new memoir, In the Dream House, from Grey Wolf. You can find our first conversation in the Tin House podcast archives at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. If you subscribe to the bonus audio archive at Patreon, Carmen Maria Machado will be adding a reading from new short fiction, a story entitled The Lost Performance of the High Priestess of the Temple of Horror. I'll also be sending out a list of quite a few references and links from our discussion to supporters of the show. If you are a longtime listener or have just discovered the show, do check out the Patreon site to find more about how to get the supplemental material, as well as a wide variety of books and Tin House merchandise for those who step forward and help sustain the program. You can find all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Carmen Maria Machado. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Carmen Maria Machado. Machado's debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, was the winner of the Bard Fiction Prize, the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the Brooklyn Public Library Literature Prize, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, as well as being a finalist for the National Book Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the Kirkus Prize. In 2018, the New York Times listed 
Her Body and Other Parties as one of 15 remarkable books by women that are shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. Machado's essays, fiction, and criticism have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Granta, Tin House, Conjunctions, McSweeney's, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, Best American Non-Required Reading, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is the writer-in-residence at the University of Pennsylvania. Carmen Maria Machado returns to Between the Covers today to discuss her much-anticipated debut memoir, Out from Grey Wolf, entitled In the Dream House. With starred reviews from Booklist, Bookpage, Kirkus, and Publishers Weekly, and already named a Best Book of the Year by The New Yorker, Time Magazine, The New York Times, NPR, Publishers Weekly, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and many others, In the Dream House has done the seemingly impossible, not only meeting but exceeding the expectations of readers after her remarkable debut. Gabino Iglesias at NPR says, In the Dream House is the most innovative memoir I've ever read. This book is a scream that ensures visibility, a chronicle of truth that weighs more than a thousand theories and all the efforts to erase the reality of abuse in lesbian couples. Throughout all of it, Machado learns to navigate her own sexuality and her writing while making sure she understands the place she occupies in a world that has always tried to erase women like her. This book makes that erasure impossible. Katie Wallman for The New Yorker adds, Machado's writing, with its heat and precise command of tone, has always had a sentient quality. But what makes In the Dream House a particularly self-aware structure, which is to say a true haunted house, is the intimation that it is critiquing itself in real time. Here and in her short stories, Machado subjects the contemporary world to the logic of dreaming. Finally, Parole Segal at the New York Times says, There is something anxious and very intriguing in the degree of experimentation in this memoir. In its elaborately titivated sentences, its thicket of citations, the flurry, the excess, feels deliberate and summons up the image of the writer holding a ring of keys, trying each of them in turn to unlock a resistant story, to open a door she might be hesitant to enter. In the Dream House is written into the silence surrounding violence in queer relationships, the silences around emotional and psychological abuse, a living archive of her own loving idiosyncratic design. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Thank Carmen you. Marie Machado. <laughs> Thank you for having me. What a beautiful introduction. <laughs> <That's> so, <nice. laughs> so ever since the final moments when you were here a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, when you mentioned that your next book would be a memoir, and I think at that point it was called A House in Indiana, yeah. mm-hmm. a memoir that would be both experimental and about abuse and queer relationships. It's loomed very large in my imagination, and I've been in anticipation of this conversation <laughs> ever since that time. It doesn't take long for the reader to realize when they open the book that the house where the story takes place in is itself a means to tell the story, and in a way is a character within the story. It reminds me a little bit of your essay that we discussed last time, Why Alice Monroe Should Play Gone Home, mm-hmm. where you quote Monroe's introduction to her selected stories. And she says that in that introduction, a story is not like a road to follow. It's more like a house. You can go back again and again, and the house, the story, always contains more than you saw the last time. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us 
the story of finding the form, uh, how early or late in the process you found it, and if there are ghost versions of in the dream house that exist in a in either a different form or a different mode or a different shape. Yeah. Um, so it's so funny with this book because I feel like people keep asking me, you know, how, how did you write this book? And I'm like, uh, unlike my first book, I read it, I wrote it in such weird bursts and fits. And like, there's not like a neat, like in the, or rather, uh, her body and other parties had a very neat sort of like, there was the time I wrote the first story and a time I wrote the last story. And I consider those times in between, like the length of time it took to write the book. But this one went through so many phases and so many drafts. And I sold a really weird draft to Grey Wolf that is now really different. And the final book is really different. So yeah, so for, I mean, a while, like basically as soon as sort of the events of In the, of in the Dream House were over, I, I was trying to sort of commit something to the page. And it was all pretty terrible. Like, I wrote... Um, some really bad essays. I wrote like just stuff. Like I just sort of tried to commit things to the page and I was really struggling, I think because I was trying to tell it in a straightforward way. Like I was just sort of describing what happened and it wasn't very interesting and it wasn't very beautiful and it wasn't much of anything. And I felt very frustrated and whatever I would sort of put down just, it wasn't really working for me. And then in like 2015, I was, I, I, at that point I had moved to Philadelphia with my now spouse, but, um, I went back to Iowa city to teach at this, um, there's this like summer, I call it like summer nerd writing camp for high schoolers. Um, it's this really delightful program and I would have like killed to have done it when I was a teenager. But so I, I was in Iowa city, like teaching these teens and doing this workshop. And, you know, every day we were talking, I was talking a lot about craft and like, I was talking a lot about genre because that's like the thing that sort of interests me more than anything else um in writing and so i was talking a lot about genre and then i would have all this free time and i would just be like wandering around iowa city and at some point i began to think about haunted houses and the gothic and the way in which those genres have sort of spoken to me and the way they're so interesting to me and when i talk about them i could feel myself getting very sort of animated and you know thinking about space like what does it mean for a space to be haunted like what is that mean precisely like outside of the door traditional sort of oh someone died there or you know something terrible happened there you know um and yeah and then at, at some point there was just a series of thoughts like idle thoughts and then at some point i was like i wonder if the way to write this book is actually sort of fragmented and is using genre as like a mode but like many genres not just one genre as like modes of interrogation um and then i just did it and I, by the time I had left Iowa City, I had made like a whole list of different genres I wanted to play with. And, um, and then, yeah, and then I began, I mean, but I was picking, but I still was picking away at it, you know? So the first draft that I wrote was very, um, it was like entirely in second person, totally by accident. It was entirely like memoir bits. Like it wasn't any of the sort of analysis or essay or pop culture or any of that stuff. It was just this happened, this happened, but having the genres as a way of writing, actually, I found it really fruitful. And like, it, I, I, I've been describing it as like, then the whole draft, like a draft, like fell out of me, like a wet baby giraffe, you know, it was like <laughs> all legs and slime and had a really yeah. far way to go, but it did it. And, and then it was like, and it had all the makings of the big giraffe in it, but it was still little, you know? And so I, yeah. And then, and then I was picking away at it, picking away at it. And I would sort of have these bursts of productivity. So like I had a big burst of productivity, um, fall 2016, which was when I was, um, I was at Yato finishing up her body and other parties or I was finishing the edit. So I was 
edit, uh, exchanging emails with my editor. I would send him a draft. He'd send me back some notes. And we were going back and forth like that for like a few months. Um, and so in between those emails and me working on the collection, I just kept working on the memoir. And then in early 2017, um, I feel like I feel so weird explaining this. It's like such a so insider baseball. But like basically I had showed it to my agent and I had said, you know, I, I know it's really rough, but like, do you, do you think this is worth showing to anybody? And he was like, I do. I actually feel like, you know, even though it is rough, like the project is very clear, you know? And so Gray Wolf also was inquiring if I had any other books because, um, you know, I think they, I think at that time it was before the collection came out, but I think they had a sneaking suspicion that it was going to blow up really big and they wanted to sort of pick, pick another book up for me if possible while they could afford me. And so, they asked after it and I said, I do this like really weird project and I feel weird because I feel like it's really raw and it's very like unformed still, but I feel like Grey Wolf would also be a really good home for it. Um, and because I feel like they, they more than anyone would be able to like do right by a book like that. Um, that is just so niche and so experimental and so sort of strangely structured. And well, I want to, I want to linger on, on the question of form, and of architecture yeah. for a minute before. Oh, sure, before sure, we sure. Go, yeah, sorry. Before we, no, no. Before <laughs> before we move on to the quote unquote story of the book, right? Because right, right. because the book announces its form and makes the scaffolding or the act of its own making visible. The building of the building is sort of what we navigate at the beginning of the book, and, and I'm thinking, kind of like um, in the New York Times review when they're saying that sense of fumbling for which key is going to... I love that quote. I I read that quote out loud to several people. I was like, I really like that quote. It feels really accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about the beginning because as far as the scaffolding goes, we get three epigraphs and each epigraph is a standalone epigraph on its own page. So we flip the page three times. We see three different epigraphs and then there's an overture where you confess that you never read prologues, that you both distrust them and find them tedious. And then we get a really remarkable prologue. And then finally, after this great prologue, we get another standalone epigraph before we move into the book. So tell us about this series of moves, this sequence of what I would call doors in (laughs) in the New York Times lingo. What is the effect you're going for or what are you trying to evoke by this layering that we, or this navigation that we have to go to before we start. God, it's so funny hearing you describe it out loud. I'm just like, my first reaction is like, God, I'm such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what is that nonsense? No, I, I mean, th- there's, okay, like how to explain that process. So I'm like trying to think of like the correct order, like in which those things happen. So I was sort of constantly working with epi- – I actually had more epigraphs, if you could believe it. I had a whole bunch, and I was like, I feel like three is the most I could get away with before someone's, like, making fun of me. So I, like I, – I spent a lot of time trying to decide, and, you know, I ended up – I mean, I wanted that Zora Neale Hurston quote because it felt really true and really important to me. The Louise – I don't know how to say her last name. Um, I don't speak French. Oh, bourgeois? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That quote about, like, memory and architecture, you know, felt very, like, appropriate for the project. And I was actually – there was a very early phase, like, after I sold the book to Grey Wolf, but when I was still kind of putting it together, where I thought about using some of her work as, like, a structural element. And I ended up sort of completely sort of avoiding that. But that quote kind of remained from that process. So that was, like – it was hanging up, like, on my – in one of my little houses when I was working on it. 
Um, and then there's that quote from Angel Street by Patrick Hamilton. So that's the play that Gaslight, uh, the film Gaslight was based on, the two films of Gaslight. Um, your mind is indeed tired. Your mind's so tired that it can no longer work at all. You do not think. You dream. Dream all day long. Dream everything. Dream maliciously and incessantly. Don't you know that by now? And that's a line being delivered by the husband um, to the wife um, in that play. And that actually came a little later because the title in the dream house had didn't exist yet. And it was really weird because once I once I had decided on that title the sort of many levels of that title began working and actually ended up becoming very like important, even though that process happened like fairly late in the game. Um, and that, and it was like, that epigraph feels really necessary. Like I was rereading angel street and I like happened upon that quote and I like, you know, underlined it 10,000 times and like circled it. it was like, Oh my God, you know, and I have to put that in there. So, so the epigraphs felt necessary. And I feel like, you know, part of trying to establish oneself, like I feel like part of this project is about context and about creating context around your, you know yourself and like where do you belong in in the history of things and where do you belong in the literature of things and and where do your experiences go and I feel like that was a really important part of the process and so like part of that is like a sort of a setting up like these sort of lodestones right mm-hmm. in the very beginning where you're like here are three really different artists writing from like really different traditions and like really different you know they're working from totally different spaces who have these three quotes that like are really speaking to the project and then initially, I actually didn't have the overture. I just had the prologue. Um, and the prologue also came really late. Like, basically, once I started researching stuff about archival silence um, and and put that chapter together, that first chapter, I was really proud because I, I feel like a thing I struggled with with this book was turning the research, the more research-heavy sections into readable prose, which is, like, a thing I never really had to do before and is actually quite difficult. So when I would, like, read stuff out loud to myself... Like, I'd be reading a piece that I'd written about my own experience, and it would, like, read really well, and then I would hit, like, a research piece, and, like, I felt like the prose would just die on the page. Mm. Like, it was so flat, because I was, like... And so I feel like learning how to massage research into, like, beautiful sentences is, like, very hard. And so that was, like, a big part of the process. So I was really proud when I wrote that chapter, because I felt like it was really good, and I felt like it was really working on a lot of levels. It was a really good introduction to the thing and I thought prologue would be a really good even though it's funny because I kept thinking like I always hate prologues but like I guess this is a prologue I don't know what else to call it because it's like an introduction you know it's sort of like an almost an overview or like an introduction to like what the reader is about to read and then and then my editor pointed out to me that it might be sort of strange to open up a memoir with not my own words he's like you have three epigraphs and then you start off with a quote by Sadia Hartman um don't you think that's a little strange and I was like oh that's a really good point. And so then I was like, well, I should open with something else. But what comes before a prologue? Nothing. And then I was like, oh, wait, an overture. So yeah, so then I, and then I was like, I might as well just like insert my own skepticism about prologues yeah. into the thing. So it was like a very like, and then I was like, oh, and then I'm like, I want it to be in five sections and each of the sections is going to have their own epigraph. I'm just like a weird, I'm just, I'm amazed that they let me get away with, honestly. <laughs> like, I feel like it's like in the I'm the person who's like in the grocery store like back when my spouse and I were on a really really tight budget like I was the one that started being like I want that can we get that please and she'd be like no we can't afford it and I feel like I'm like that but as a writer like I'm like can I just have eight epigraphs like why do why can't I have eight epigraphs (laughs) whatever well and somehow it's all it's all worked and I kind of wanted to I wanted to ask you about that because in your description of the video game gone home you call it a symphonic structure where each tiny story in their own right sort of suggests an elipo like constraint yeah um and this symphonic yet constraint based structure seems like one way you could describe in the dream house too where each chapter starts with the phrase 
Dreamhouse as. So we have Dreamhouse as world building, Dreamhouse as fantasy, Dreamhouse as public relations, and so on. And near the beginning, much like where you give this distrust of the prologue and then the prologue, you give us the chapter Dreamhouse as not a metaphor. But then nearly 150 different Dreamhouse chapters that feel like attempts at comparing it to something else or for it to be representative of something else or for you to try to tell your story through a different trope or a different slant, kind of like uh-huh. Kano's exercises and styles. So when I, I think of Kevin Brockmeyer's blurb for the book, which calls it a book that builds itself entirely out of left turns but can seem by its final pages to have followed the surest possible path to its center. I guess, and also there's this other review that talked about each chapter having great ambition and failing, and then somehow also acknowledging that all of the failures come together as a success. I wanted to hear about this notion or this reader response of left turns that get you to the heart of the matter, Mm -hmm. and how how does that strike you? Is that something that you... Is that the sort of labyrinth that you feel like you created, or is that something you're learning about the work and hearing other people describe it that way? I feel like that description, those descriptions you just mentioned, also that thing from Pearl's review of the the keys, sort of fumbling with the keys, right, is I think is about as accurate as you can possibly get when it comes to thinking about these sections. And I mean, obviously, like bits where I sort of undermine the reader or I sort of like, yeah, like tell you it's not a metaphor and then like give you a lot of metaphors and tell you I hate prologues and give you a prologue. Like that's just me being a rascal. Um, But I also (laughs) I also feel like there's something really because, you know, genre is all about expectation and it's all about like what can you expect from a piece of work about the world that you're in and you know, that expectation can be, very, you know, when it's, I think, best executed is when there's a level of subversion to it, where like sort of the, the, the you know, or it's like really done really, it's either done really completely, and it was a really like exquisite exercise in its own genre, or it's like undermining its own genre in some meaningful way. And I feel like that's always when I, when I really respond to a piece of work. And so I feel like, yeah, the process of sort of saying, you know, you can imagine all these different things, but like the truth, the fact of the matter is when I tried to tell the story in a straightforward way, I couldn't and no one would listen to me. And so I'm just going to like throw every metaphor at the wall and just like, you know, walk you through like the ways in which I sort of can infi- conf- insufficiently conceive of like what happened, where I belong, what context I ent- I should be entered into, um, what is the real fact or truth of my experience, um, so, yeah, so I, I feel like that is a very, like, probably the most sort of astute mm. kind of read on the tone of the book. And I feel like also in Katie Walden's review, she had some really great line about, which I felt like actually really captured me to a T, which is like, like something about how it, it's so, it's so kind of all over the place that if I didn't have a tremendous amount of control, the whole thing would like fall apart. And I think that is like sort of me in a nutshell, honestly. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm really interested in, in, ambitious work and work that really like pushes its own boundaries and like pulls itself right you know and i and i feel like i just read this quote i think it was garth greenwell it might have been in lit hub you know he's interviewing right now for his new book and which is stunning and and you did a great interview of him oh yeah oh did you uh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He the, did an event the video of you. philly it was a well i mean he's such a brilliant speaker i feel like it isn't that hard to do good interview with him. you 
just ask him a non-terrible question and then he just gives you some like stunning breathtaking really answer he's so yeah. good um but yeah but he said something about like you know writing to, to sort of the, their one's own edge like writing sort of to you know to the, the limits of one's own capacity and i feel like and I feel like so much of this book was really scary for me because I did feel like I was writing to the edge of my capacity in terms of like writing from research and like writing about the past, trying to explain things that were kind of unexplainable, you know, trying to like be sympathetic and like explain to people like, like even though you might feel ways about me or about like what I have to say that like I need to explain to you what it felt like. And, you know, and so I feel like there was so much of it that was about that. And that, that the experimentation became sort of part of that process of, like, writing to the edge and trying to, like – and I think that, that to me, is, like, the most exciting work, you know, um, in general. And I feel like – yeah, I don't know. And so I feel like that was sort of part of the process and that sort of, like um, – and I feel like, you know, in terms of, like, the sort of – like, I feel like the closest example to this book that I have already written is the Law and Order story from, from – especially Heinous from mm-hmm. – her body and other parties because i feel like it also has that symphonic structure and is like a way of thinking about like how to tell a single story through many many stories you know and sort of and that's and also has like a kind of a similar structure mm. um so yeah in case you just tuned in we're talking today to carmen maria machado about her book in the dream house from gray wolf when, when thinking about the what of this book of how you might articulate what the book is about in light of these 150 attempts to capture it to circle it. One of the questions it raises is the sufficiency or insufficiency of language. Can language capture it? But as we dial in more specifically to your story, one where you were in an abusive relationship with your first long-term girlfriend while you were studying at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, a girlfriend who later you came to discover specialized being the first girlfriend for many women, there are, are some queer specific things that make telling the story more difficult than the more general difficulty of telling any story from one person to another in language. When you were last here, we talked about Joanna Russ's How to Suppress Women's Writing and how an archive of women's writing is continually disappeared or disappearing. But this seems even more true, maybe by an order of magnitude with queer writing and maybe even more so about abuse within a queer relationship. And you return to this question of the archive in your prologue, and as you mentioned, citing Sadia Hartman about the violence of the archive and archival silence. And, and you quote Jose Esteban Munoz, who said, Queerness has an especially vexed relationship to evidence. When the historian of queer experience attempts to document a queer past, there's often a gatekeeper representing a straight present. And I guess I was hoping maybe you could talk, you've talked about the difficulties in general, but maybe we could talk more specifically about grappling with writing your story without an archive of stories to draw from or to stand upon um, as as you wanted to add to an archive, a, a, a smaller archive than it, than it should be. Yeah. Well, I think for me, part of the stress was like not having like even before I was writing this project, like not having sort of something to look at to sort of align oneself with. And I feel like 
probably the most common comment I get, I've gotten about this book from people I see at events and people who write to me is like, I've just never seen this represented anywhere. And that actually being a couple of things, like not just like either writing about queer DV or writing about a woman being an abuser or right. Like I've had, I had a straight guy reach out to me and be like, I have just never seen, like I was abused by my ex-wife and I've just never seen that represented. And also just writing about in general, like psychological, emotional, verbal abuse. Um, and so, and I think that that means it means something when you don't see that represented and then suddenly you do, there's something really like devastating about that. And so I feel like part of it was that was that feeling of, you know, um, sort of having creating that space. Um, so then and then the other thing that was really hard was that, again, I felt very out of my uh, out of my depth. And so, I, you know, I kept thinking I kept I keep ref referencing that line from Contact where Jodie Foster is like they should have sent a poet. I'm like, they should have sent a historian. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at, you know, yeah. and like that was really hard because like I, I, you know, I was sort of piecing together. Like I was doing all this reading. I spent like months just reading. And like, you know, by the end I was like, I think, I think that I could tell you about, like, if you asked me, I could tell you about the general sort of movement of the conversation about domestic violence in lesbian relationships in the United States between like 1980 and like 2010 and like it's a very specific but i'm like oh guess that's what historians do right is they had they have like incredibly specific sort of like you know uh sort of um bands of knowledge that are about like really specific like people and time periods and i feel like but even so i i worried i was like what if i miss something like what you know like i'm this is not my area of expertise like turning research into but then also i was like sort of I think one of the weirdest parts was like at some point when I realized I had read so much of it that I suddenly had a sense of a narrative about history, like about that, not, not even about myself, but about that piece of history where like, you know, women were really struggling to sort of talk about something in their community. And like they were both being failed by the straight community in various ways, but also within their own community. And then also there, there being this problem that like when whenever you know this issue would like approach the legal system like you would fall into these traps of like heterosexuality and whiteness and like you know lawyers would find themselves like turn themselves inside out to like say like okay jury like imagine that this person is the woman in the relationship like she did all the cooking and this woman this other woman was like the man in the relationship does that help you like understand how to think about this idea and the way in which like sort of both violence and also queerness like sort of um detach women from their own gender identity um of whether they want to or not and and how that creates a lot of like anxiety and stress and it was just like so interesting because i suddenly was just like i did all this reading and suddenly i was like oh i think i understand what happened hmm. that's so interesting like i had just because again like i'm not this is not my area of expertise and it was really interesting to kind of get there and so yeah and so in a way that was kind of cool but also terrifying because i was like for all i know i'm fucking i'm super super wrong and like i just keep waiting for some historian to me and be like you are super fucking wrong you know <laughs> like i just keep waiting for someone to say that oh sorry can i i can't say fucking can you, i you can oh i can okay yeah, we'll just beep it out great okay. but on the podcast everyone's gonna get to hear fabulous it. okay great um but yeah so i feel like i feel like that's very like anxiety inducing so it's not even just about like looking for comfort where you can find like stories that that speak to your story, but also like what does it mean to try to like create a space for that? And also like, and I feel like what comes along with that is anxiety about if I've really fucked up, like having to be okay with that and being like, and you know, also being aware that like my book, like my book 
by definition, it, it only can explain a certain sort of thing. It's like, you know, I am like a white presenting woman of color, queer, born in 1986, like grew up in the suburbs. Like I have a very specific profile and like my experience by definition cannot speak to everyone's experience. And but like there might be more pressure on your book there, because precisely. of the absence of representation. Precisely. So like, you know, a thing that happens, and I think a thing that happens, especially when you are a person sort of from a marginalized community, sort of writing sort of an, an early text into like genres or subgenres that don't exist, or representation doesn't exist, is that everybody wants your thing to be everything for everybody and that's like literally impossible like it cannot be done but there's a real lot of pressure in that way and so sort of recognizing that like by definition i have like i've written this book and i'm proud of this book but also like i'm so i've certainly failed in many ways and you know in the back of the book i talk about like ways in which i might have failed and sort of saying like if there are mistakes they're mine you know and like I was just the first I was I'm doing I'm not the first but I'm like very early in this like very tiny tiny canon and my hope is that one day it's just like a very early attempt and like a very large you know and there's like lots of writing about it and like you know speaking to like that experience you know like from like a trans person's perspective or like a black person's perspective you know what I mean like where there's like different sort of elements at play and I feel like that that to me feel will feel like the kind a real success when my book is like just one of like a bunch you know um, and then its failures are sort of can be made up for by like other books and their, you know, their, their sort of attempt into those spaces. Um, but the pressure is very high. I mean, it, that's, it's very stressful. I mean, and that was sort of, as I was writing this book, I mean, it was all I was, I guess all I could think about, you know, it was really overwhelming. Well, you've spoken about that right after you got out of your abusive relationship, someone sent you an essay that was the first essay you'd ever seen about queer domestic yeah. abuse. And it's called, If You Ever Did Write Anything About Me, I'd Want It to Be About Love by Connor Habib. And there's a line that struck me in it that I think captures the difficulty of finding purchase on a narrative or a foothold from which to tell the story. He says this about the abuse. Nothing links up. Nothing makes sense. There's only feelings and actions as you're lost to something bigger than yourself. There is no cause in that way. And perhaps in that way only, it's like love. I guess I wanted to hear more about this idea of being lost to something bigger than yourself, because you talk a lot about gaslighting, as you mentioned, and you were writing about gaslighting, perhaps in service of this book in progress when we were last here uh, talking together. Um, but gaslighting of this type is, uh, that of the type that you're in is, um, or were in, is is particularly hard to dis escape, I think, because the domestic abuse in every way is, was perfectly legal. Yeah. Um, and you even point out that in the movie with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, he does criminal activities, but none of the actual gaslighting that he's really doing and none of the horror of the psychological abuse that he's doing is illegal. Like, mm -hmm. he's not beating Ingrid Bergman, mm -hmm. but he's destroying Ingrid Bergman. And... Yeah without leaving evidence, mm -hmm. as if we go back to the, the Munoz quote. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny when I, because I, I now I feel like I've, I've watched Gaslight, like the Ingrid Bergman version of Gaslight, at this point I feel like 20 times. Like, I've watched it so much, and I'm really interested in the conversation around it, because, you know, people started using, when Gaslight sort of came back into vogue, like around the Trump election, and people started talking about Gaslight, people, like, misuse Gaslighting a lot as a, as a, as a term, um, 
and I think what was so interesting in rewatching the movie over and over was thinking about how, you know, he isn't because people always sort of people who haven't seen the movie will say like, oh, he's trying to make her crazy. And it's like it's like a side effect of what he's doing. It's like he wants something he does to do what he's doing to Igor Berkman is like the is like the most sort of straightforward path to getting what he wants. And he just doesn't care, you know, and and that to me is like far more scary than like the cackling maniac who's like, I will make my wife crazy. You know, I feel like there's like a way of like, because if you think about it, just like, oh, he wants to make her crazy just because it, it feels so like alien. Like it feels so like, you know, this way in which we use phrases like sociopath to sort of distance ourselves from like people who do really horrible things. But in fact, and I feel like it's also like a very misused expression or misused idea when in fact, like what you're talking about is a person who for whatever reason, like has some desire and want and like, treating you well is like in the way of that in some way you know and that's a really scary thing because it isn't because it's like it's like if it was just sort of you know and i'm using all this like giant quotation marks around it but like madness it was just this like general sort of unformed desire to hurt it would be sort of on it you would be able to like kind of hold on to it or understand it but what's really hard is just like saying like why would you do this to me like if someone has like if they're just like you know what like what, what could you possibly gain doesn't this make you feel terrible um like i think telling people that they are that th that, th that what's happening to them is unique and has never happened before is like a really is like probably i feel like one of the worst kinds of violence you know saying to somebody like no, I've never heard of any, you know, you're the first tough, tough shit, you know, like that's actually a really fucked up thing to say to somebody. And it's like a really fucked up idea to think that it's true about yourself. Um, and to think that you are alone, hmm. especially when what is happening to you is like one of the most common thing, you know, like the thing that about the abuse that's so strange and hard is that like, when you strip away the details, it's actually all very, very similar. Like abusers function on a very, very like limited sort of script. And like, if you know what to look for, like it always repeats itself. Like there's a very specific thing and it doesn't really vary very much. And so to tell somebody, oh, you're gay or whatever therefore like what's happening to you is like completely unique and we're just not going to talk about it and like too bad for you because also that there's a way then you feel like maybe i've deserved like maybe i'm so terrible that i've like earned this somehow when in fact like you're just you exist in a power structure that like has always existed where like people have hurt people in this way and and that and knowing that, that that's true and knowing that other people have had that experience is like you know, it's, it doesn't do a ton, but it like does like sort of move you toward the space where it's like, what has happened to you has happened to other people and like other people have survived it, right. you know? And I feel like there's something about, sorry, I don't know if this is actually answers your question precisely, but I, I just feel like there's something about that that's so specific. And then I think a lot about how like in Gaslight, like I feel like the only way that Ingrid Bergman survives is because this like other dude, right? That the, the the detective is sort of like observing all this from afar and is like, what's going on? And then kind of like intervenes. And I always think to myself, like if he hadn't been there, like if he had just not, or not been interested, like I feel like she could have died that way, you know, just like being sort of stuck in this like prison and this prison of like, you know, that he sort of helped her make for herself. And like, I don't know. And that's really scary. So I feel like there's just something very like interesting about, I don't know, the narratives that we sort of tell and the way that we, the way that we like talk about what it means to be in the situation and like why the reason it's important 
to tell people like this has happened to me too is because yeah if you believe you're alone or you're the first then really that's it's a sh- just a short step to like i'm clearly so awful that like this is happening to me and this has never happened to anyone else right and that just seems to me like one of the worst kinds of violence you can commit against somebody you know yeah. and that's like a cultural violence because it's not even about the abuse specifically it's about like the culture is telling you like you don't exist so. yeah well let's hear a couple of the chapters sure. I-, I was hoping we could hear dream house as world building and dream house as noir sure dream house as world building places are never just places and a piece of writing if they are the author has failed setting is not inert It is activated by point of view. Later, you will learn that a common feature of domestic abuse is dislocation. This is to say, the victim has just moved somewhere new, or she's somewhere where she doesn't speak the language, or has been otherwise uprooted from her support network, her friends or family, her ability to communicate. She is made vulnerable by her circumstance, her isolation. Her only ally is her abuser, which is to say that she has no ally at all. And so she has to struggle against an unchangeable landscape that has been hammered into existence by nothing less than time itself. A house that is too big to dismantle by hand. A situation too complex and overwhelming to master on her own. The setting does its work. This world might as well have been an island surrounded by impassable waters. On one side, a golf course owned by the university, as was the house, where drunk undergrads would stagger like zombies silhouetted on the hill. On another, a stand of trees that suggested a forest, mysterious and laced with wildlife and darkness. Nearby, houses occupied by strangers who either never heard or didn't want to get involved. Last, a road, but the sort of road that led to another road, a larger one, unfriendly to pedestrians, not meant to be traversed, really, miles from the town center. The dream house was never just the dream house. It was, in turn, a convent of promise, herb garden, wine, writing across the table from each other, a den of debauchery, fucking with the windows open, waking up with mouth on mouth, the low, insistent murmur of fantasy, a haunted house, none of this can really be happening, a prison, need to get out, need to get out, and finally a dungeon of memory. In dreams, it sits behind a green door for reasons you have never understood. The door was not green. Dreamhouse says Noir. She is not your first female crush, or your first female kiss, or even your first female lover. But she is the first woman who wants you in that way, desire tinged with obsession. She is the first woman who yokes herself to you with the label girlfriend, who seems proud of that fact. And so when she walks into your office and tells you that this is what it's like to date a woman, you believe her. And why wouldn't you? You trust her, and you have no context for anything else. You've spent your whole life listening to your father talk about women's emotions, their sensitivity. He never said it in a bad way, exactly, though the implication is always there. Suddenly you find yourself wondering if you're in the middle of evidence that he's right. All these years of telling him he's full of bullshit, that he needs to decolonize his mind and lose a gender essentialism, and here you are learning that lesbian relationships are, somehow, different. More intense and beautiful, but also more painful and volatile, because women are all of those things, too. Maybe you really do believe women are different. Maybe you owe your father an apology. Dames, right? 
listening to Carmen Marie Machado read from In the Dream House. So to return to this notion of archival silence and then, for instance, the pressure that your book has to be representative of things that it might not be representative of because of both the absence of of a wide variety of representation in, in queer of queer relationships and queer abuse in relationships, um, but also because the culture at large is creating all sorts of terrible representations. I wanted to ask about another aspect of the book that you go into, which is silence enforced by the queer community itself. Mm -hmm. Um, You write in, in Dreamhouse's queer villainy, real queers deserve representation, not because they are morally pure or upright as people, they deserve it because they're human beings. And Dreamhouse's equivocation, you say, the desire to save face, to present a narrative of uniform morality can defeat every other interest. And it seems like a an understandable impulse in this climate mm. to potentially only want to put forth a positive public face. But also from a literary perspective or an artistic perspective or or from a the perspective of truth mm-hmm. around lived experience. I wanted to hear a little bit about how you both navigate that as a writer of your own experience, but also um, explore it as a, as a topic in the book as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I was working on the book, I mean, the thing that really always scared me was having to talk about, yeah, like talking about dirty laundry of one's own community. And I mean, that is a thing that, I mean, it's also a thing that a lot of people have said to me during like interviews, like saying like, I belong to this community and it's a community that I don't necessarily belong to and saying like, you know, sexual violence is a really big problem in this community, but like, we don't ever get to talk about it because there's this desire to sh- to save face and not sort of, sh- you know, air that long- dirty laundry. And I think that's super common. And I, I mean, it's not just true of the queer community, it's true of a lot of communities and like, it, it's also a kind of violence, right? It's like, it's like, you know, for example, it's like, and I think it, it happens with a lot of different things where it's like men get to just kind of like, as an example, like straight dudes get to just like fuck up left, right and center. And then they get to like be human beings, talk about it, apologize, blah, 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 whatever. But it's like, yeah, like all these groups, like racial sort of minorities and like sec- sexual minorities and, you know, various, like they all have to like sort of show this face of yeah like morality like perform this respectability politics and say like aren't we the best boys and girls like aren't we the best and we deserve we deserve to be able to get married like we deserve to be able to like not get fired for our sexual orientation like we deserve to be not shot in the street like we deserve you know and that's really horrible right like making somebody sing and dance for their human rights um and then it makes it harder to like speak about one's own experiences, you know, and you sort of risk drawing ire from certain sort of people in your own community. And like, that's an anxiety that I had and continue to have about this book. And it is not lost on me. And I, I think about it all the time. And I, I, yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's very stressful. And it was like a really big part of writing the book. And I decided to talk about it fairly directly, you know, and think about, I mean, I write yeah, about villainy and I write about like queer villainy in particular, but of course it's its own sort of, thing in like literature and film so yeah so so i was just really i don't know i've just always been very interested in yeah like what it means to write into that and what it means to sort of be like i'm gonna tell a story that like some people would rather i don't say but like it happened to me and like i can't i don't know what else to do 
you know and so yeah so i'll just like talk about it and talk about how like respectability politics but like that 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 that, meant, that mindset like ruins people's brains i mean like i talk in the book like i briefly mentioned in a footnote about that you know that lesbian couple that the white lesbian couple that murdered their five adopted black children like what was that two years ago now mm-hmm. um three years ago and people really struggled with that story because like we've been because like you know for a long time when like gay people were struggling to like adopt children people would say like gay people not only are gay parents good parents but they're like better even than straight parents you know um and there was this real sort of intense like dialogue around that and it's like the reason for that is because like people were saying that if you were gay you couldn't shouldn't be able to adopt children because you would like pervert them or whatever and that's like super fucked up and like obviously not okay but that also doesn't mean that like gay parents are incapable of doing bad shit that like straight parents are also capable of. And then of course you have like a racial element in that as well, sort of white, um, white, white supremacy and, and, and just this really like, anyway, so like that story was very interesting to me, to me because it like demonstrated like, and, and the fact that people really resisted and were very troubled by that story, like a lot of like white gay people or white queer people were like very disturbed by that story. And were kind of like, maybe there were other circumstances, you know, we're like sort of trying to like make it fit into that narrative. And it's like, no, like you can say like these white lesbian parents were like narcissists and like murdered their children. Like that's not, it, you can say that and like, you don't have to like sugarcoat it or like massage it to make it acceptable to this like narrative of respectability. You can just say like they were, they did a horrible thing and you know, and, and I feel like that just makes, yeah. And I feel like you can get really get, just get kind of trapped in a straitjacket of of that idea, you know, of those of that, the desire to be, to present this like moral moral face, you know. Taking that into the world of of creating art, it reminded me of a recent discourse on Twitter that you were involved in oh, with uh, at Clark's World around a story called "I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter." Yeah where a trans science fiction writer is excoriated for the ways their story was told. And you were upset with what you called an anti-intellectual thread throughout the conversation and also essentialist language used against the story, such as a trans person would never think that. And I I wanted to read a couple of your thoughts and and just hear more thoughts, (laughs) if that's okay. (laughs) That's fine. Okay. So I love love these declarations of yours. I want stories that are dangerous, weird, jagged, ambitious. I want art that bites off more than it can chew because you can learn from it, because it can change your temperature, provoke your heart, crack open your brain, because sometimes what seems to you to be a failed experiment is actually not a failed experiment at all. And sometimes it becomes clear in retrospect that an author actually succeeded in doing something often long after the art has entered into the world and the discourse has moved on. And you also add, evaluating art solely by quote-unquote potential harm caused and judging harm caused as a unit of moral rightness or artistic merit is so bananas I don't even want to dignify it with a response. Finally, I know what it's like to write shit in which one has incomplete, complicated, problematic thoughts about one's own body or identity or community. If I let those thoughts run my brain, my first book would have been completely gutted and my second book wouldn't exist at all. So I guess I, I, I wondered if hearing those words back in relationship of what we're talking about, yeah. both silence and silencing from uh-huh. within and from without uh-huh. and essential, essentializing language when it comes to someone who's writing a, a trans story in, in the quote unquote wrong yeah. way. I haven't read the story. You should. It's really good. 
I just, sorry, as you're reading this, I'm like getting mad, not at you, but I'm remembering how mad I was last week when this was all going on. And like, I'm just suddenly like, my anger is just like surging up in my body. I'm trying to like respond in a way that feels measured and is not going to get me in more. Yeah. People had a lot of feelings about that story. I mean, I, you know, what's really, I mean, I feel like I have a lot of thoughts about this and some of which I don't want to say out loud because I feel like. I feel like this toxicity of, like, certain kinds of discourse. There were other people who spoke more eloquently on this than I did. Like, there was actually this writer, um, Lee Mandelo, who I actually quote in the back of In the Dreamhouse um, because um, he had written on really beautifully on Joanna Russ's House of Press Women's Writing. And so he, like, many days after I had said my piece, had to lock my Twitter down because people were losing their minds. And then... He, he made this, like, really beautiful sort of, I don't know if you read this, like, very eloquent thread, sort of talking about different kinds of readings, like, paranoid and reparative readings, and, like, the ways in which, you know, you've, if you, you, you that, like, they're, like, reparative reading is, like, being sort of open to the fact that, like, a piece of art could, like, potentially hurt you, but, like, being sort of open to that experience as opposed to, like, a paranoid reading, which, like, requires a certain amount of, like, kind of purity and sort of these boundaries and barriers and and sort of it almost is like inherently kind of a bad faith like assuming bad faith and i and i feel like what frustrated me with that story was like or not about, about the story itself the story itself i found very moving and really provoked me sorry i know this is not exactly what you asked me but i have to like talk through it so like that story was very interesting to me it i really liked it a lot of people really liked it i think people who either identified as like trans or non-binary and also people who are like sort of noodling about gender in their own gender and in you know whatever way that manifests i think it really spoke to some really important stuff and then there was sort of a response a very like outsized response that i think really earned the fact that author had written the story um anonymously or not anonymously but under a, a pen name and i found that i found that discourse very frustrating because it it it, it did like sort of, it had a very deeply like bad like those the folks who I think really hated it. Not, sorry, not the folks who hated it because if you didn't if you read if you read something you don't like it that's totally fine. But the people who were sort of like enraged that it existed were giving people a, a, who liked it a really hard time. I think we're we're super focused on like some people didn't like this and it created a, it created and harm was a word that was getting thrown around a lot, which like I feel like didn't actually mean a whole lot in this context. Um, and sort of demanding that if and then saying if you didn't experience it that way, then like you were wrong. And so like all these people who found the story enriching and interesting and thought provoking and spoke to some piece of them found their experience kind of like being undermined by this like sort of pseudo social justice voice. And it was just it felt very gross. The whole question felt very gross and in very bad faith. And I was extremely angry about it. I'm still really angry about it, actually. Like for days after I had locked my Twitter down, I was like waking up in the morning and like angrily drinking my coffee. Like I was just having so many angry thoughts. So, uh, sorry, I know we're like way off topic. <laughs> question that you asked me but, but the I, story was pulled i think it, well right? the author request the author requested that the story get pulled people were people were going so far as to like because like, the bio included their birth year and it was 1988 and people were like that's a secret like neo-nazi reference and i was like i, I was like you all y'all are fucking you're losing your minds what's going on this is ridiculous and I, and I feel like i was very frustrated because it felt as if a lot of people including a lot of like social justice non-gender non-conforming people we're also just like making these sort of declarative, 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 is that the word? Declarative statements about like what was, what was okay and what was not okay. And I just found it 
infuriating. I, I was, I was just, I cannot describe to you. And then, and I had been, and I, and I, and I wondered like, what would it be if one had read all those thoughts before one read the story? But I read the story without, I read the story like before anyone ever was really talking about it. And I was, and I loved it. And I thought it was, I'll send you a copy of it. I have a copy saved from the internet, but it was like really good and like really, really interesting. And I just, like, I don't know, it like spoke to me as somebody who like thinks a lot about gender identity and feels like, like I'm constantly sort of noodling over like what is, what it, what it means to be something or be not be something. And I don't know. I really, really loved it. And I felt like the discourse just felt very around. It felt very bad faith, very anti-intellectual, very like essentialist and also yeah like like very narcissistic because it was declaring that like one and so like what lee had said in in his thread which was very smart was like also like if you feel like it's caused harm but it's like been beneficial to other people like you're not the center of the universe you know there's like lots of ways to read this and like you know i don't know and then i kept coming back and thinking like i have reasons for feeling strongly about writing one's own also, it seemed obvious to me reading it because most people were like, oh, it's not a trans person who wrote it. But like reading it, it was very clear to me reading it. Like it seemed manifestly clear to me, like on the first read that the person who was reading it was a non-gender conforming person because I felt like the way the person who was writing it, the person who was writing it. Yeah. yeah. And, and and like and like I and people kept saying like, oh, this is a thing that like a trans person would never say. So like this is clearly been written by like, a, you know, and I was like, I feel like not even a close read, like a kind of half-assed read would reveal, <laughs> would reveal that this story, you know, is written by somebody who's having, like, these thoughts feel very real and very vivid and very sharp. And, like, it seemed very, very obvious to me. And so whether or not, like, people were like, well, we don't even know who wrote it, if they're trans or not. And I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. And, like, also it seems fairly obvious to me. Anyway, sorry. That is not what you asked me. I know. I just, I get so mad thinking about it. I just want to break something in half. Um, but I feel like, then to sort of bring it back to the question that you asked about my book, you can cut all that if you want. That's fine. No, no. But I, but I feel like I feel like whether to bring it back, like right, like I feel like the anxiety of if you if you desire to have a discourse about your own identity or community or body that's beyond like one hundred and one, you know, like. Because, like, people, it's, like, I feel like, okay, to, like, bring it to, like, queer, like, move away from, like, gender identity, move toward, like, queer, like, queer relationships, like, people are, like, love is love. And I'm, like, yeah, sure, but, like, okay, I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't really care about that. Like, I actually care about, like, way more complicated questions about, you know, I don't know, like, <laughs> like, the politics of being a slut. And, like, you know, what does it mean like, like, like thinking about queerness in terms of like shifting entities or like to, to reference like Andrea Long Chu. I don't know if you know her work at all, but like the way Andrea Long Chu writes about transness, not as I, as like affirming an interior identity, but like moving towards desire and like a queer version of that where like you're like, you know, not saying like maybe you aren't born gay, but maybe like you can choose to like move towards desire and like myself feeling very complicated about like, I'm technically like quote-unquote bisexual or like queer but like i also could not imagine me with a man anymore because like i i find men so frustrating that like the idea i'm not even really with very few there's a few exceptions like the guy who plays gerald on the new witcher show on netflix <laughs> i feel very like i'm just i'm like very not attracted to men anymore but it's not because my orientation has changed it's because like right. i think i've become like politically a lesbian even though technically i'm queer and i'm like not technically a lesbian like i do find men attractive but i'm also kind of like I don't even give it. So, so the, you know, so that's like very, it's a very complicated thing to say, you know, like what if you're not born gay, but it's like, I don't know. It's like, I feel like there are people who are like making art and asking questions that are like beyond these like very, very basic, like 
I'm a human being. And it's like, yes, I agree. But can we not move past? Like, why don't we want art that moves past that? Like, why can't we write stories about, like, how fucking bananas gender is? Or, like, you know, how complicated queer identity is? How the community is large and fails itself in myriad ways? You know, not just about abuse, but about, like, race, racism and, like, all kinds of stuff, you know? And, like, and like transphobia and, like, all this other stuff. And I feel like that, to me, is a far more interesting question. And I'm suspicious of people who don't find that very interesting. Yeah. I'm suspicious of I, I'm like I'm not and I'm and I'm bored by that. Like I'm bored by the basicness of that discourse. And I find it infuriating that people think of that as the height of like literary criticism when in fact it's like the basest and lowest of literary criticism. Like, you know, where it's like, is the author this or this? Does the idea in the story like fit in a neat little nugget that I can fit in my mouth? Great. Okay, yay. Or if it doesn't, then nay. Right. right. And, and I'm like how is that the end of that conversation? <laughs> you know, like, how is that? How is that true? I, I don't know. I just find that very frustrating. And it makes me want to like break things in half. And I, and I, and I feel like then, and then last week feeling like that whole conversation was so ridiculous. It was ridiculous on its face. And people were being ridiculous. And then it's like trans author who wrote this like really gorgeous story, like ended up having to feeling that they had to pull their own work because it upset a bunch of people and I want, and I, and I, I actually like got in touch with her via like a, oh, I don't know who, it, I don't know her identity, like I don't know her name, but like we connected with like a mutual, through a mutual friend, and I just had said to her, I mean, and she did pull it, but it was before it got pulled. I was like, I really hope she doesn't take it down. Like, mm. I think she shouldn't, and I think it's a really great story, but she, you know, she ended up doing it. So anyway, so I just sort of feel like, yeah, like I'm not interested in in those basic conversations. It's not that people shouldn't have them; people should have them, but that's not the that is not the end of like that conversation. You know, yeah, and I feel like people give. I mean, Andrea Long too is like a really example of like a writer who's like very much pushing beyond those really, really basic questions in terms of like transness, and like people give her a hard time at every single turn. Like everything she writes is like bananas smart and like really, really interesting, and like makes me think a lot about gender, and like it's just like it's just like phenomenal. And then you get these people who are just sort of like, well, it doesn't fit into this like very basic understanding of what I know to be true. And therefore, like, I don't I, I reject it as like, not just I don't like it, but I reject it as like evil and bad and wrong, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I find all that very frustrating. Well, let's. Sorry. <laughs> that was like the. Sorry. This is what happens when you like poke the little you put <laughs> you put a pinhole in the bubble and it just like everything just pours out. <laughs> This well, is what it's like to be like married to me. Like, you ask like one <laughs> innocuous question, and then like three hours later, you're just sitting there as I'm like yelling and like pounding on the counter. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> that, well, <laughs> I thought it was a great answer. Oh, great, fabulous. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Let's hear another chapter. Please. Great. Okay. Sure. I was thinking, Dreamhouse as sniffs from the ink of women. Okay. Dreamhouse as sniffs from the ink of women. Norman Mailer once said. The sniffs I get from the ink of women are always, among other things, too dykily psychotic. In other words, one woman writing is mad, and a woman who loves women writing is mad squared. Hysteria and inversion compounded like interest, like an eternally growing debt. Mailer's use of the adverb dykily suggests that, for him, disinterest in his dick must be a species of psychosis. Narratives about mental health and lesbians always smack of homophobia. 
I remember watching Girlfriend in college, a rare Bollywood film about queer women in which a wrench-wielding butch lesbian seduces a gorgeous femme, but eventually the femme pulls away and falls in love with a dude, and the butch goes ballistic, becoming possessive and violent before dying in a fall from a window. I came of age in a culture where gay marriage went from comic impossibility to foregone conclusion to law of the land. I haven't been closeted in almost a decade. Even so, I am unaccountably haunted by the specter of the lunatic lesbian. I did not want my lover to be dogged by mental illness or a personality disorder or rage issues. I did not want her to act with unflagging irrationality. I didn't want her to be jealous or cruel. Years later, if I could say anything to her, I'd say, for fuck's sake, stop making us look bad. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Carmen Maria Machado about her book In the Dream House from Grey Wolf. So one of the reasons why I had a lot of anticipation about you writing nonfiction is because I knew you weren't going to write it straight. When you talk about these stories that you love in defense of I sexually identify as an attack helicopter and say you love stories that are dangerous, weird, jagged, and ambitious, even though I knew the memoir was going to be tethered to real life events, I knew there were going to be those elements in it. But what I really loved in particular was the ways in which you draw forth the science fictional and the fantastical of real life. Um, not just because we travel through different tropes, fairy tale, science fiction, murder, mystery, and a variety of others as we go through the book, but a whole bunch of other reasons. And so I wanted to start with one. And one is the assertion that you make that fantasy is the defining cliche of female queerness. So tell us about what that means to you. And then we can explore some other ways in which you um, bring these these elements of genre into into the content of the book. Yeah. So fantasy, it's funny because the word fantasy like has so many, you can parse that in so many ways. But what I'm talking about in the book is how there's this sort of idea in like que like female queer sexuality of paradise, of utopia, that like when you find a queer female community or a girlfriend or a female love like that like that, that act of like coming into one's own queer female sexuality is an act of entering into a kind of utopia or paradise and i sort of you know found just found a lot of examples of like that being the way that we always have talked about it and even like you think about the jokes you know about like queer women like you know like u-hauling right which is like what is it you know what does a lesbian bring to the second date like a u-haul right they like women move in very quickly together and there's all this sort of optimism around it you know and this and and i mean that's and that's fine and i think it's like you know obviously okay to like be able to make fun of your own you know like saying like like i feel like lesbians with fo photos like val and i have a photo in front of a u-haul like when we got moved in together like we got make sure to get like our, a u-haul photo you know for our own just because it was quite funny but um yeah but i do feel like that is you know and that's part of what makes and i and i talk about how you know it's because you know finding sort of happiness and daily pleasure without men's sort of accompanying bullshit is like a pretty decent working definition of paradise but then of course then that complicates things when you when you think about things like abuse you know you think about things like ways in which those relationships can be vulnerable um and you don't i mean you know it's interesting too because i feel like and not to bring it back to the <laughs> tech helicopter story but like a thing that was happening was people even after the author came out and was like i am a trans woman people were saying weird stuff like oh but you're writing like it has a it has a masculine like we're sort of making these like statements of like oh but it was written with like a masculine voice or it or it was written with like a cis voice like the voice of it is not trans and like that's a thing that people um, would say about 
female abusers like in the past like i found a lot of like references to like people saying oh well maybe that person beats her girlfriend but like she's butch so like it's like her masculine energy it's like her manliness or her you know and sort of using this very like essentializing language because like because the other explanation is too comp is like it violates this like set of norms right it like violates because if you if you believe that it isn't her masculine or her masculinity but it's just like she is a woman she's abusing her girlfriend right she identifies as a woman she's a woman like she's abusing her girlfriend then suddenly you have to have a different conversation right and you can't like shuffle off responsibility onto quote-unquote masculinity you have to actually have a conversation about like what does it mean that there's like abuse in our community um and and that's really hard and i think people really struggle with that and so i think that that's true like to so so like in the case of the attack helicopter story like people would say that and then because because it made because if you really believed that the story was like bad in that way like the author being a trans woman like complicates things for you and so it's like easier to say well it's still written in this way even if the you know it, and, and i feel like that's just like a thing people do to protect themselves and it's really disingenuous and it's really embarrassing and on its face very like sort of yeah like anti-intellectual and very sort of um like obviously a problem you know or, and i think it's just hard to and like there's a there's this quote that i found in the book can i read this quote is that yeah. okay so there's so so I, so this is just a footnote um from Dreamhouse's equivocation it says this new this no true scotsman fallacy could bend these narratives and, and then that being a true lesbian would not batter, um, could bend these narratives in every direction conceivable, create a kind of moving goalpost that permitted an endless warping of accountability. In a firsthand account of her abuse in gay community news in 1988, a survivor wrote, quote, I had been around lesbians since I was a teenager, and although some of them had troubled relationships i was unaware of any battering i attached myself to the comfortable myth that lesbians don't batter much and but batter was the phrase that was lesbian battering sort of the expression that they used to describe like abuse in that time um much later when i was out enough to go to gay bars in town that was in a town that was liberal enough to tolerate them i saw that some lesbians did indeed batter however i thought they were all of a type drunks sexist butches or apolitical lesbians so i decided that feminist lesbians didn't batter End quote. And then activist Anne Russo put it more succinctly in her book, Taking Back Our Lives. Quote, I had found it hard to name abuse in lesbian relationships as a political issue with structural roots. Um, so not like a weird anomaly, like a thing that actually is not, it's not about sexist butch butches or lesbians who have no politics. Like, you can have, that you can have good politics and still be like, like hurt, hurt your partner. Yeah. Um, sorry, I like forgot even what the question was. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, on this, like, no, we did it. We oh, did great. the question. Yay, great. Okay. <laughs> well, to, to return to like other elements that I feel like you're drawing from fantasy and science fiction, in the prologue, you, you talk about memoirs and active resurrection, that they summon meaning and res resurrect the dead, which I, I love that image. But you also describe memoir in this great way as, as time travel. And you've cited, much like Ted Chang does, the Novikov self-consistency principle that even if you are able to travel into the past, you still cannot change it. Um, but I wanted to hear more about time travel as, and memoir, yeah. particularly because this is one of the only memoirs. I, 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 I'm sure I, maybe I've read another one, but I can't conjure a name. But it's one of the only memoirs where a good chunk of it is in second person. So you're telling yeah. your story in first and second. And you're traveling through time, visiting yourself mm -hmm. in a sense in two different voices mm -hmm. so talk to us about time travel and memoir and also about point of view and 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 memoir and specifically this one 
Yeah. So when I first wrote the first draft of, of the book, the one that I sold to Grey Wolf, it was entirely in second person, but without unintentionally so. Like, I, in fact, didn't realize it until they pointed it out to me. And I was like, oh. Um, and Ethan, my, my editor, was like really, who's like brilliant and we work really well together. Like, he was very thoughtful about it. And he was like, it's not that you can't do that. You totally can. But I want to make sure that you're doing it intentionally, that you're not just like so traumatized that you're using second person to like distance yourself from the material. And I was like, that's super fair. Like, I'll, I'll think about it, you know. And then when I went back to the book and I tried to put it, I tried to just move everything into first. Um, and I was reading everything out loud and it was really resisting me. Like a lot of the things that I was changing, like didn't sound as good and didn't sound right in first. And I was like, oh, so I moved it back to second. But then I was like, I have to like explain it somehow. And I was thinking a lot about Justin Torres's We the Animals, which of course is this beautiful novel told in a plural first voice, a we voice, that then an act of trauma shatters the voice into like second and third and then eventually first. And... I was thinking about how I could do something similar and thought about this sort of shattering where like the first person is like the me who like went on and like lived her life and is like here giving an interview and is here, you know, like wrote this book and is like living her life. And then there's like this you that's like trapped in the past and is trapped in this like eternal hamster wheel of pain that just like never stops. And that like in the not, no, I don't know how to say it. The, the self-consistency principle in time travel, which I actually learned from Ted. Like that was actually from, was Ted. from Ted. Well, I had read. So I mean, I'm a big, I, he was a teacher of mine at Clarion. We, he once gave a lecture on time travel to us while we were there um, on time travel in literature. And of course, his story, The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate was like very, which is like an amazing short story it's or amazing. Like a novella, I guess it is. But, yeah. um, and it's so instructive on like the way that sort of time travel can function. And there's something really devastating and beautiful about that sort of detail of this man, like trying to go back to like unmake the past and how like you can see, and you're like rooting for him to like save his wife's life, even though you know that like she is already dead. She was dead at the beginning of the story. Like he, no matter what he does, like he will by definition be delayed, but he still is able to like go back and like learn other information that like comforts him, but he's not able to change the past because you simply can't right? according to this particular way of thinking about it. And so I feel like that actually was really helpful to me in thinking about, because like, yeah, obviously writing a memoir is an act of time travel, writing any kind of, nonfiction where you are sort of approaching a past version of yourself and you and you can talk at her you can sort of say like you did this you did this why did you do this i'm wondering why you did this but she can't hear you you know this past carmen can't hear her like can't hear me and she doesn't know that i'm here and she doesn't know that i'm speaking to her and that i've like survived and i've gone past it and she's just going through this stuff over and over again and so the book you know and so i felt like there was a way of me the book became a way of sort of getting to address that in a very sort of literal and direct way. And I think it works. I mean, I was worried. I was worried that it would be hard for a reader to parse. But once we had sort of established the rules, I mean, Ethan read, I remember Ethan reading through it and being like, I think it actually really works. Yeah. I, it, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't feel like it's an obstacle to I the reader. Yeah. I mean, it's really the, the immediacy of the you, yeah. which is the older the past you, yeah, yeah, the past yeah, yeah. you is you and the, the current you. is. She's I. younger and older. Yes. She's the younger Carmen. And the older, but, but, and the which, older is all, which is this whole weird time travel. I know. It's actually memoir. quite, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think it's like probably one of the more useful metaphors that I, I mean, I feel like, yeah, some of the metaphors, I feel like, you know, it was always so funny, like trying to go through and like thinking about how I can make these metaphors sort of work or not work in various ways. And I feel like that's probably the most, one of the most successful. And I feel like is the one that. I feel like I mention it in therapy a lot. So I, that's how useful of a metaphor it is, you know, because I'm like, like, I feel like when I talk about the experience of not being able to like confront or not being able to like 
like wanting to reach her but can't not her being my past self and not being able to reach her like that's the useful that's the really useful metaphor so you you mentioned that you teach a class on haunted house literature Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you've also contemplated having this haunted house the dream house at one point you were thinking of having the haunted house itself gaslight the reader or abuse the reader Mm -hmm. and that and there's i think there's traces of that when we get to the choose your own adventure which um has an attitude (laughs) (laughs) Um, but could you talk about that i don't know if it's a false start or the or just the vestiges of 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 contemplating having the book itself be doing that to the reader the way your abuser did that to you yeah so at some point i mean part of part of the thing about this book was i really wanted like a thing that interests me about form is its ability to create an effect in the reader wherein a certain experience is mimicked and uh, like a, a very a line that I teach is a story that I teach uh, by Alyssa Nutting called Porn Star, which is a really I don't know if you've read it. It's mm-hmm. a great short story. It's from her first collection, and there's this line in the story where the I'm not gonna be able to say it out loud because it's a fairly long sentence, but basically it's to the effect of she's she's like saying like I notice this, I notice this, I notice this, I notice all of these things about five minutes after I realize that I'm stoned. So the sentence like backs into the fact that she's stoned and the sentence is kind of long and weird and she's observing things in this very weird way. And then it, it, then she's like, I've, I'm remembering this all, you know, and what's so interesting about that sentence and the reason I, I, I underline that sentence to my students and talk about it is because like the effect of that sentence is that you're stoned, like the way the sentence moves imitates that feeling. And so that's a very, and that's not done like, it's not a particularly like big formal thing. It's just like a very smart way of writing that sentence. And so. I feel like for me, I'm always really interested in stories that create that sense where there's something happening that makes you feel a certain way that is creating an effect that would otherwise be true like in the piece of writing. And so, yeah, so at some point I said to myself, I really want to create an effect in this book partially for the reader of what it is to sort of be yanked around in this way. And I, I, I sort of went through and sort of discarded a series of options that I had. Like I considered like writing about something that – as if I had already written about it, but in fact I had not, and then sort of yelling at the reader for not remembering. But then I got concerned that people would just think that I didn't, like people would not realize what I was doing, would think that I just didn't know my own book. You know, I didn't know what I had already written. Like I was like trying to do it in a way that were like, because the, the, the balance is like doing it and then making the reader aware that's what you're doing. Right. And so then I was thinking about the choose your own adventure, which also came fairly late in the game. Like I feel like I wrote it probably like fall before I finished like I finished in like December of 2018 and I think I wrote that chapter in like November or something but um if as far as I can remember but in any case so I yeah so I remember like thinking like a choose your own adventure is actually a really good example because a choose your own adventure is like a form that suggests choice it like gives you the which is like a thing you don't really have in, in reading right it's like you can, you can choose to read or not to read but once you're like in the text it's like you're just right. You're just following along with what's going on. And I feel like the choose your adventure was interesting because it gives you this illusion of choice, but in fact, there is no choice at all. You're getting, you're getting given two specific options. It's like telling a toddler. It's like, they say, you know, if you, 
if a kid if you're if a kid is always like if you're like we're putting on clothes now the kid's like ah like what you do is you say would you like to have a blue shirt or a red shirt and then they feel like they're making a choice but in fact they're not they don't have a choice of whether or not they're getting dressed or not just like which kind of shirt they're wearing <laughs> and i feel like that's the thing about a choose your own adventure right is it's like it's like giving you these two false options and it's like you know and like it's it's trying to sort of mislead you and like you know in like the traditional like choose your own adventure books like there's only really one successful path right and then there's like a lot of fake paths or paths that will lead you to death or destruction or whatever. And so I realized that the short adventure would be a chapter that could like achieve that goal, but like creating, yeah, creating an anxiety for the reader. And, and I've been told that that's like one of the more harrowing <laughs> sort of parts of the book. And I, multiple people have told me that. So I think it, I think I did my job correctly. And but... it's also the most mischievous because there's yeah. those pages that you can never get yeah, to there's unless the hidden, you cheat. Right. There's the hidden pages. If you cheat, then you get yelled at. And yeah, that was all. <laughs> and that was, I stole that 100% from um, Kevin Brockmeyer. He has this amazing short story. Have you read it? The, I haven't read that one. Oh my God. It's so good. It's um, the human soul is a Rube Goldberg device and it's beautiful and it's, it uses that form in a totally different way, but it's like a really efficient use of the form as well. It's gorgeous. It's such a good story. And he inserts fan, fan, the fantastical into his memoir too. He does. Like he does. there's a, a middle section. Yeah. He has a section in his memoir, which also was like very influential for me where he, yeah, like he, um, time stops and the, um, like time stops and the reader, Oh, sorry. And then the, um, his adult self comes and talks to his young self. He's, he's been a very big influence on me and was also like a teacher of mine in Iowa and was my thesis advisor for her body. And is just like a really brilliant and lovely person. And also he was like a very early reader of especially heinous and like absolutely loved it. He's, he's formed a lot of my thoughts on like mm -hmm. form and, and genre. He's just really smart and really lovely, but in any case, so yeah. And then he also, this short story like also had a hidden page. It's like, and it, you know, in that case, it's not being used to yell at the reader. It's being used to sort of it's like almost like the thesis of the story, but you can't get to it normally. Like you have to go kind of find it. And it's, again, it's very like mischievous and beautiful and devastating and is where the title of the story comes from. And it's really, really good. Can, can we hear, um, dream house as nightmare on Elm street, dream house as talisman and dream house as myth. Sure. Dream house as nightmare on Elm street. Seven years on, and I still dream about it, even though I am four houses, three lovers, two states, and one wife past the dream house, and the dreams aren't terribly unlike those I had when I was a kid, the ones in which I could hear the distant thumping footsteps of some unseen monster. The footsteps never sped up or slowed down, but remained horribly, terribly even, and when I'd try to hide, because hiding was all I could do, there never seemed to be the possibility of opening the door and going out into the world beyond the house. There'd be creatures in my way, a skeleton under the bed, a ventriloquist dummy behind the shower curtain, a zombie in the closet. And while they were terrible, and I had the sense that in the dream I could not share a hiding space with them, I also recognized that they were hiding because they were scared, smaller monsters terrified of that large, unseen thing. And as I ran from room to room, the steady footsteps of the oncoming thing never faltered. And so seven years on, I am still terrified that if I force myself awake, as I learned to do as a child, she will step out of the dream and into the waking world, where I am safe and so far away." Dreamhouse as Talisman. When Val and I started dating, I still had a year left in Iowa City. I saw the woman from the Dreamhouse often, on the streets and at bookstores, making the town her own. I had not yet trained my body to resist the nauseated panic those sightings brought me, and so Val got me a vial of Angelica root from a store in Salem, Massachusetts. 
It looked like wood chips, smelled funky and spicy. I bought a locket on a long, burnished chain and tapped the fragments of the root into the pendant. I do not believe in this, I said. Wear it, she said. Let it work. So I did. Who knows if it warded anyone off, but here's what it definitely did do. Tapped against my breastbone, smelled like bad incense. Every so often the clasp loosened and the fragments spilled down my front or into my bra. When I got undressed at night, I'd noticed the chamber of it hanging open, waiting to be refilled. It reminded me that Val cared about me and also that nothing can keep you safe. Dreamhouse as Myth when you try to talk about the dream house afterward, some people listen. Others politely nod while slowly closing the door behind their eyes. You might as well be a proselytizing Jehovah's Witness or an encyclopedia peddler. Kind to you in person, what they say to others makes its way back to you. We don't know for certain that it's as bad as she says. The woman from the dream house seems perfectly fine, even nice. Maybe things were bad, but it's changed. Relationships are like that, right? Love is complicated. Maybe it was rough, but was it really abusive? What does that mean anyway? Is that even possible? You will never feel as desperate and fucked up and horrible as you do when you hear those things. Once, a woman drunkenly touches your elbow at a party and says, I believe you, into your ear, and you cry so hard you have to leave. You walk home in the dark over a footbridge and see a fat raccoon waddling up the riverbed. The raccoon is a trickster. Everyone knows that. He doesn't look up. He doesn't speak to you. He just keeps going. But keeping going is a way of speaking. You hear him. He's saying you will fight this fight for the rest of your days. We've been listening to Carmen Maria Machado read from In the Dream House. I kind of want to ask you a, a somewhat elaborate question. <laughs> that's, <Okay. laughs> that's a more pragmatic question about writing memoir about sure. somebody in the world. And two past guest conversations come to mind. One was many years ago, and it was also a memoir of queer relationship trauma. But this author went to great lengths to disguise the person's identity, largely because this person was well-known. But when I later, by chance, learned from someone else who that person was, mm -hmm. whose identity had been changed, I realized how much it changed my impression of the memoir. In this case, I think the author's exploration of her own identity in the memoir is changed or her ability to explore it is somewhat constrained by the ways she had to change the identity of her lover. Of course, there might have been very good personal or legal reasons to make this choice. But then I also think of another conversation I had on the show more recently with Sofia Shalmayev, who wrote the memoir Mother Winter. In that book, she um, describes, though the book isn't about this, she describes some moments of physical abuse from her dad, where she gets thrown and he breaks her back. Um, but she wanted to write the book as autofiction, both to have the freedom of um, like changing details, changing details, yeah. playing with truth, the truthfulness, yeah, yeah. Um, the exaggeration, tone, um, more like Chris Krauss book, right, perhaps. Sure. But her publisher really insisted on it being memoir and being marketed as memoir. And because of this, she had to go through a gauntlet of legal requirements, which included contacting people in the book and having uh, them read sections where they're represented and having conversations with them. Mm. Um, I don't, I have no idea what the norm is or if there is a norm or if it's publishing house to publishing house, but it seems like in the dream house that you don't seem to disguise much. We know the name of your real current partner, your wife, who was also, uh, 
a past girlfriend of your abuser and we know the places your abuser went to school and where you went to school. And I'm guessing she's likely well-known within certain communities in Iowa and Indiana. So I guess I have this multiple prong question uh, on behalf of writers who want to add to the archive Mm -hmm. of silence to combat the violence of the archive that exists, but might have pragmatic questions. So here 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 are my questions. One was, what were your considerations on how much or how little to obscure geographically, physically, names, details. Um, what was your relationship with Grey, How- Grey Wolf with regards to the hoops you did or didn't have to jump through mm-hmm. legally? Um, and then what's come up for you or comes up for you around managing your fears around writing about a living yeah. person in the world um, who abused you now that the book is out? So in terms of what to obscure or not to obscure... I didn't name her. Everything else felt pretty fair game. And that was more for practice. That's not because I don't think she deserves to be named, but also just it didn't, it seemed like a fight. I didn't want to fight. And so, but everything else, I mean, also, you know, it it would seem really silly to obscure those details because it's like you could very easily, like, I mean, I, I, you know, this all happened in the age of social media. Like you could very easily like figure out where I went to school. Like, you know, where I went to school. It's like literally the back of the book. It's like. You know what I mean? Like, it's like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hard to, to disguise. And so it just seems like putting, like, disguising it would only just feel. I mean, and people, I think people have different relationships with how they would write. Yeah. So I, I definitely had to figure out. But so, yeah, so I feel like for that, it was, you know, and in terms of like, you know, obviously I write about like, about like my family. I write about like relatives of mine. I did not ask their permission. I did not run those sections past them. I really didn't care. You know, and I, I know a lot of I am friends with a lot of other nonfiction writers who have done very different. Like I have a, I have a very good friend who had a book come out in the last year. that was nonfiction who had to, who ran all the sections, however minor, past the people who were in them. And it created a great deal of turmoil um, for her, uh, even the most enough, because also people are, you know, when you, I, I feel like giving other people control over that. It's like it's my book. I'm writing truthfully. If they, I sort of, I sort of am of that school of thought of like, I think it's, um, no, not Annie Dillard who said that, uh, Bird by Bird and Lamott said like, you know, you could, you know, if people wanted you to write nicely about them, they should behave better. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I did let my spouse look at it and, you know, just make sure that she was okay with everything I was writing about her because I'm married to her and I care about what she thinks. But for most people, I was like, it doesn't really, you know, it's like, I certainly don't care about my how my ex feels about it. I certainly don't care about like, you know, like my homophobic aunt that I mentioned. It's like, I don't, I don't really give a shit like what she thinks about it. And so like running it past her would only cause me grief. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of, um, I don't know. Yeah. So, so, so and yeah. Is your orientation to how you would do it? Did that it by happenstance dovetail with gray wolf's concerns or lack of concerns or were there, how, how did that work out? I can say I, all I can really say is that Grey Wolf was very supportive in the process that I went through. Um, okay. I felt very supported by them. Um, yeah, I think that's about all I can say about that. Okay. Um, it's hard, and I think it's just, and I don't think like one way is right or one way is wrong. I think it's just some writers have different concerns and considerations, and books are different, and you know, and I mean, I acknowledge in the book, like you know, obviously a memoir is, it is like one person's sort of vision of of something, and you know, that, you know, and I, I recognize that. And, and, you know, I know that like my experiences are shaped by my own perception. And like, I understand that, like, I, and I talk about that in the book, you know, 
but yeah i don't know i guess i just feel like it was my story if it's like i feel like you know i'm not a journalist also and so i feel like if you know if you're a journalist and you're writing about other people that don't involve you at all like obviously you have a very high you have a responsibility of like thoroughly sort of like making sure that everything kind of matches up and like talking about where stories don't match but like i feel like i don't feel that way about a memoir i feel like it's really different when it's about you like if it, i think if it involves you it's fair game to write yeah. about and sort of in the way that you that you that you feel is is that you see fit, you know, for your own project. Um, it, it sounds like different publishers might have different opinions also. Uh, yes, and I think, right, authors. I think also, yes, there obviously are, like, your publisher is going to have different feelings about it, like, whoever your publisher is working with. Like, there, yeah, there, there's definitely going to be different considerations, um, certainly, yeah. I mean, it just depends on a lot, of, a lot of factors, for sure. Yeah. So in the dream house ends with an engagement with endings, which seems great since <laughs> mm-hmm. it begins with a an engagement with prologues, um, how to end a story that never really ends that continues to reverberate through and informs one's life. So maybe for the ending of our conversation, we can talk about what's coming up for you. I know that you have a, uh, limited series with DC comics, mm-hmm. the low, low woods. Yes. So maybe you could talk about that and also what we can expect next from you otherwise so sure. that we can, wait with abated breath for <laughs> well i can say that i'm working on a new fiction project which is very which i'm very excited about and i've been really enjoying getting back into fiction i really missed it um and then yeah i have this series from dc um which is now the third issue is coming out in mid-february um so issues one and two are already out um it's joe hill is curating this line of comics called hill house and it's a really um it's been really fun actually i've been really enjoying it uh, you know, I, I was writing, a, I was writing scripts for it, which is like a very new thing for me. So that was like kind of interesting, but I think I really took to it. Like the editors at DC were very impressed. Like, cause I think, you know, it's hard for a prose writer to like move to like a different medium, not, not necessarily, but it would, I, I sort of thought it would be har- harder. I took a screenwriting class in college. I did very badly. In it. So like, I feel like I was like, I don't know if I can do this, but it's sort of a weird mix. Cause it, it's, it's cause there, you can do a lot of narration and I am directing the art. So like, you know, I would say like mm. in this panel, like this character looks at this character and like in the background you see blah, blah, blah. Like it's very specific, you know, yeah. and it's almost there. And also there's like a lot of opportunities for narration, which also kind of, I can indulge my prosy voice, you know, in, in the narration. So, so yeah, it's really great. Um, and I've really been enjoying like the collaborative element of it and the art is beautiful and they've done a really good job. And it's like also like a really fun, it's like really nice to write a story with like two characters that are like, it's weird because it's like, they're not, there's no eye voice. I mean, there is cause there are like, they both alternate narrating the, the, the but like, I feel like I write, I, my first book, almost every story was from an eye voice and this is one of the first times that i've ever written a story where there's like two characters like in this case octavia and l and like they are these third person characters that i get mm-hmm. to write about and it's like really really fun um yeah that process has been really great and i've really been enjoying it and it's been very like fruitful for me and and is your new fiction a collection or is it a novel it's like a linked it's sort of hard to explain it's like a linked collection it's like I, I'm, i've been very um admiring of how garth greenwell's new book is being marketed as a book of fiction yeah and not which i, I first found very confusing but now i find very liberating so i'm like it's a book of fiction <laughs> <laughs> i mean he described in all his interviews as like a song cycle but like yeah it's it's yeah so it, it, it's stories that are set in the same universe it, um through various periods of time in which like a so the 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 it, and there's a comet that's about to that's like tearing through space time that is going to tear through all these realities all at Whoa. once so in each story the comet has appeared for the first time in history but like in each even though the stories move through history like right. move so 
yeah so it's but it's but they're individual stories like they're sort of about different time periods different kinds of characters but sort of i'm sort of gnawing on stuff about like sex and like mem like a very uh, you know out off brand for me uh sex and also like um memory and like consciousness and um i read a lot about like i don't know i'm really interested i've been reading a lot about like comet panics like astrological panics of the of the history which have been very interesting yeah i don't know it's been really fun. it's like it's a lot of historical fiction which is new for me as well so yeah i've really been enjoying enjoying that and it's really nice i kept you know the, the, writing this book was really really hard the memoir and i'm really grateful to be on the other side yeah i'm grateful to be like back in fiction and being able to like write about pain but not my pain yeah could we end with dream house's ending sure of course. is that too much of a spoiler to do that um i mean no, you I... talk about it in interviews i think so it's up to you <clears throat> dream house as ending that there's a real ending to anything is i'm pretty sure the lie of all autobiographical writing you have to choose to stop somewhere. You have to let the reader go. Where to stop this story? Vows in my wedding on a hot day in June. Some narratively satisfying confrontation between the woman from the dream house and me. If you grasp the story by the base and pull, will the ripping sound indicate the looseness of the roots? What is left behind in the soil? Should I loop back to a memory from the dream house, a lovely one? Will that work, a contrast between what could have been and what was? A memory of the two of us freshly returned from a local winery, sipping on a spicy Zinfandel and eating some kind of feta dip and telling a story. One day, the woman from the dream house will die, and I will die, and Val will die, and John and Laura will die, and my brother will die, and my parents will die, and her parents will die, and everyone who ever knew any of us will die. Is that the end of the story? Time's mindless, chattering advancement? There is a Panamanian folktale that ends with, My tale goes only to here. It ends, and the wind carries it off. It's the only true kind of ending. Sometimes you have to tell a story, and somewhere you have to stop. Is the spoiler that we're all going to die? Because I, <laughs> I have a spoiler for all y'all listening, and also you. Death will come for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> it was so great to have you back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're talking today to Carmen Maria Machado about her new memoir, In the Dream House, from Grey Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Carmen Maria Machado's work at carmenmariamachado.com. For the bonus audio archive, Machado reads from new fiction of hers, a story called The Lost Performance of the High Priestess of the Temple of Horror. This joins supplemental material by Daniel Jose Older, Miriam Taves, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Christina Rivera Garza, Ted Chang, Tommy Pico, Brandon Shimoda, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, 
Imre Lodbrog a Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.